I'm going to have Trent come up, and he is going to read our scripture reading for this evening. Good evening. Today we'll be reading out of the 13th chapter of Luke, verses 10 through 17. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. But then the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox? or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Thanks be to God. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for a chance to open up your word and to, uh, God, to be taught by it. Um, God, we, uh, we thank you for the fact that um, through um, the inspiration of the scripture, God, that you have given us this reliable testimony about who you are, who your son is, who we are, um, what has gone wrong in the world, how it can be fixed, um, God, how we should live in light of, of eternity and in light of Christ and in light of the gospel. Um, God, your self-revelation um, to us is, is more than we could um, hope for and certainly far beyond what we deserve. Um, but we thank you that we have it. Uh, we thank you that, that um, we can turn to it uh, and meet you in your scriptures. Father, we continue to pray as we do each week um, uh, that you would, God, bring revival to our community, that you would bring revival to our church, God, that you would bring revival to our families and to our own hearts. Uh, we ask that you would stir us up to greater levels of faithfulness, greater, greater levels uh, of sacrifice. Um, God, that you would help us to to not think of ourselves and that we would um, God, unselfconsciously take the gospel to, um, to our community and our neighbors and our family members and our work associates and our friends. God, that you would go before us and that you would till up the ground, that you would prepare hearts um, for the good seed that will be laid there and that you would bring a harvest from that. God, that we would see people turn to Jesus and that we would see those who are already in Christ um, God, begin to live in faithfulness, and we would see those who are faithful in, in, in their walk um, continue to, to grow in, in greater and greater levels of obedience. Um, God, we ask to see that uh, in our community and in our own lives. 
Um, we thank you for the way that we know you are working um, in our community. Uh, we thank you for the way that we know you are working in our own lives as, as we pursue you, God. Um, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you extend to us every single day as you reach out to us uh, and minister to our own hearts, uh, God, and, and grow us and teach us and lead us in the way of righteous, righteousness. God, continue to do that. We thank you. We praise you. Um, as we come to your word, God, shine a light on the text. Shine a light on our hearts. Um, show us the ways that we need to, God, be conformed to the image of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so guess what? We're not talking about repentance this week, um, which we have for like the last three weeks, although we're really always talking about repentance, um, honestly, because the scriptures are always confronting us in those ways. But we're talking specifically this week about the Sabbath. Um, we're talking about another story, and we actually come to a couple of these in the Gospel of Luke about um, uh, Jesus engaging, uh, with, with the, the Sabbath regulations of, of the day. And so I think I've shared with you before that I've always, th I always think it's cool. Uh, it's funny. Um, the different sort of things that Southern culture says are appropriate on the Sabbath. And so I've shared some of those little stories with, with y'all, um, from my own life. So when I was growing up, we didn't go to church, um, in Mobile, where I lived, right? We were not regular church attenders. And so usually the only time that I would go to church is when I came to my grandparents during the summer. And so so we always enjoyed that. It was very connected there at Pleasant Grove and the RAs and all these things like that. Well, another thing that we only got to do when we came to East Tennessee in the summers was buy fireworks. Um, because they didn't sell fireworks down on the Gulf Coast, or at least not in our county. And so every time we would come up, we would kind of come through Lenore City and there'd be a fireworks stand there and and we would convince my parents to let us get fireworks. And so we'd come to grandma's with fireworks. But then we realized something. We were told by my grandmother that you cannot shoot fireworks on the Lord's Day. They can't do it. You're not allowed to shoot fireworks on Sunday. And I was like, well, why not? And she was like, you just can't. You're not supposed to do that. And I was like, okay, well, what else can we not do? And so we were like, well, if we can't shoot and make things explode, Certainly we can at least like build fires and stuff like that. My grandparents, you know, lived out in the country. They didn't have trash service. So they had a burn barrel and that was the way that they got rid of their trash on a daily and weekly basis. And so again, as kids, we were like, man, we love burning stuff. This is really fun to light stuff on fire. And so I would go, Hey, can, can I go out and light the trash on fire? And she'd be like, well, not on Sunday. You can't burn things on Sunday. And I was like, why not? Like where, where do these rules come from? Are these biblical things? And the answer was, no, these are just things that you just don't do. You just don't do. Um, there's, there's, there's little ones, and probably many of us could tell those same kind of stories. Al Moeller's got a story about a confrontation that he had with, I think, his father when he was a teenager because he, he washed his car on a Sunday afternoon after church, and that was a big no-no. And he was like, yeah, but it was a hot day in Florida, and it wasn't like, it wasn't straight, like it felt good. I was, it was a nice thing to do on a Sunday afternoon. It didn't even feel like work. And they said, you know, you can't, you can't wash cars on Sundays. That's something um, you can't do. We think of stories like the the story that is is recounted in the movie Chariots of Fire about the the Scottish missionary turned Olympic Olympic athlete Eric Liddell, and so the whole story of that is that he was this you know gold medal caliber runner, but it turned out that his race that he was the best at during the Olympics fell on a Sunday, and he said, "I can't run it. I can't run on a Sunday. Why not? Because because you can't do that." 
on a Sunday. Like it should, the day is not for those things. And so there's always little stories like that, right? The Bible deals with those too, because Jesus is always coming into confrontation with the Pharisees about what is appropriate to do on the Sabbath. Luke tells us several stories about that specifically. Um, one that we've already read in Luke chapter six, where two things happen. First, Jesus' disciples are taking grains of of, of wheat um, from a field they're walking through and kind of rubbing them in their hands to get the chaff off and then eating them because they're hungry. And the Pharisees say, you can't do that. That's harvesting. That's milling. That's all these different things. You can't take grain and do that. Um, and then later in that same story, Jesus heals a man whose hand had been withered. And they say, you can't do that. You can't heal people on the Sabbath. But Jesus says, and, and, a, and a thing that we learn from that story is that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so we talked months ago about kind of what that meant and the implications of that. Another story in the Gospel of Luke is in the next chapter, chapter 14. We're going to return to another story about Jesus um, doing stuff on the Lord's Day and getting in trouble with the Pharisees in just a couple of weeks. And so um, we'll, we'll return to it again in a very short amount of time. But here we are in chapter 13 verses 10 through 16, and we ask the question maybe, well, what does this specific scripture add to that? If there's multiple places where Jesus is, is the Bible is dealing with this issue in the Gospel of Luke, each one must have some sort of significance, right, instead of just there being one story. What's, this, what's the purpose of each one? The problem, I think, that we find when we come to the text is this, is that the Pharisees are not just straight up appealing to something like those stories I told a minute ago about fireworks and washing your car and stuff like that. They're not just straight up appealing to some sort of unbiblical or extra biblical tradition that they just kind of made up out of nowhere and it has no base in, in anything at all. Because here's the deal, not working on the Sabbath is not a tradition. It's not an idea that just is part of the, the societal um, stuff of the Jewish people. No, it's, it's in the Ten Commandments, right? Um, we're supposed to rest on the Sabbath according to the Ten Commandments. So we don't um, write this stuff off that the Pharisees are saying as being um, just sort of nitpicky kind of social convention. There was a dude at Mother Church, um, he's probably not listening to this, um, uh, who years ago, Cheeto knows, um, because he was the other person. Um, he, he chastised Cheeto for, for wearing a hat inside the building. Not like in the service, not in the sanctuary, not during worship or anything like that, but just being in the building. And then relatively shortly after that, he chastised me for wearing a hat inside the building. Now here's the deal. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to take your hat off when you're in a building, okay? If you were talking about some argument, I guess, about maybe worship and head coverings or something like that, it might be the case, but it, that wasn't the point of his, his argument, right? It was just a social convention. The idea that somehow it was polite in this culture to take your hat off when you entered a building. And that's fine. And, and as a social convention, that may be fine, but it's certainly not something that we find um, uh, that is authoritative from the scriptures, okay? But again, that's not the situation exactly that we're dealing with um, here. Um, the Pharisees are trying to live rightly in light of the commandment that we find in the Ten Commandments, okay? And so I think there's two things going on in this passage, kind of like we've done the last few weeks. There's something obvious, and there's maybe something a little more subtle. So uh, the typical issue that I think probably when you come to a passage like this is what we would talk about is we would talk about the issue um, 
about the application of the law. So we find the Ten Commandments in two places in the Scriptures. We find it in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. And it tells us not to work on the Sabbath or to rest on the Sabbath. But then here's the thing. It doesn't fill that out any, right? It doesn't tell us what constitutes work. It doesn't tell us the things that we should avoid and the things that we should not avoid. And so all of that kind of idea came down to the Jewish people through what was called the Talmud. Okay, The Talmud was essentially the Jewish teachers and rabbis' commentary on the scriptures, the same way we have commentary on the scriptures. And you can buy volumes of it, sets of it from different publishers and different thinkers and different things like that. And so sort of infamously, they had created this whole system of rules to try to make sure nobody worked on the Sabbath or did something that could be considered work on the Sabbath. And so some of the rules got really specific and really kind of silly. So I think I shared before, there was a rule that said if you had to spit, you could spit on a rock, but you couldn't spit on the dirt because spitting on the rock was nothing, right? It just wasted. The spit would sit there. But if you spit on the dirt, that was like irrigation. That was like watering a plant. And so you couldn't irrigate on the Sabbath because that was something that you do for real work. So if you had to spit, you had to find a rock somewhere and then spit on that rock, okay? All kinds of little rules like that um, that they had come up with. And again, not to be dumb, not to be nitpicky, but to make sure that we don't break a commandment because breaking the commandments is a big deal. We don't, we don't want to do that, okay? And so... Um, someone might read the text and think that what Jesus is speaking against in this passage is the legitimacy of those man-made implications and applications of the biblical text. Okay. And I think he is in, 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 in a very real way. He's, he's saying this, he's saying, man, healing somebody shouldn't be something that is considered work on the Sabbath. Bringing help and wholeness to someone is not something that we should see as breaking the law of the Sabbath to, or the commandment to rest on the Sabbath. Back in chapter 6, Jesus makes this comment. When he's healing the man with the withered hand, he says this, I ask you whether it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it. Okay, he puts that question to the Pharisees because it would seem like the answer would be obvious, right? Certainly, if we have a choice between saving a life and taking a life, we want to save it. If we have a choice between doing good and doing evil on the Sabbath or doing harm, we want to choose good. Healing is not breaking the commandment. In fact, it's really the embodiment of the commandment of the Sabbath, okay? If the Sabbath is about rest... You know who's not getting rest in this story? This woman is not resting in the story. She's not been resting for a very long time. So we actually have a family history of, of uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis and some things like that, right? Like I've got, I've got family members in, in my family whose, whose hands have been just twisted up by, by um, rheumatoid arthritis. I have a, my great grandfather was bedridden for the better part of a decade, shriveled up, curled up because of arthritic condition. Um, and so, so there's sort of stories that go through my family history about situations like this woman. 
And you can imagine maybe what it would have been like to be in her situation. That's why I think the text draws attention to the severity of her condition and the longevity of it. So verse 11, he says, there was a woman who had been disabled, had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten up. So again, can you imagine what it would be like to be in a situation where like you, you can't even look up when someone engages you, you can't see them because you are so bent over that you can't look somebody in the face. Imagine the pain and the discomfort and the lack of mobility and the lack of function that would come along with that. And not just a short spell of it, but 18 years, okay? In a time when people only lived on average to be mid-40s, mid-50s, this is half a third of your life that she's been living in this situation. She has suffered long. And now she has the opportunity to be relieved from that suffering. And the Pharisees are like, can't this wait till tomorrow? I mean, you've been dealing with it for 18 years. Can't you wait until tomorrow when it's not the Sabbath? There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. And here's the deal. So maybe it could wait till tomorrow, but why would you? Why would you not heal her now if you can I think that's why Jesus calls this woman, he says, this daughter of Abraham. He's drawing attention, appealing to her humanity. And saying, guys, don't you see that there's a real person sitting here? A real person just like you, sitting in front of you, who has real problems, real suffering. And you have the ability to do something about it right now. Or at least Jesus has the ability to do something about it right now. And they have the ability to not stand in Jesus' way. And yet, they have a problem with it. So I think there's a word here, certainly for me, maybe for you too, because here's the deal. It is easy for me, in the way my mind works, and the way my heart is, it is easy for me to see the law and the line and say, we're not crossing that line for somebody's problem. I need to be careful that I don't end up ignoring people and their issues to uphold my standard for doing things. We have to allow people to interfere in those things sometimes, to inconvenience us in them. We have to make sure that our institutions, you could say maybe, don't keep individuals from actually receiving help. Now here's the deal though. There's a flip side to that, too, especially in our culture right now. Um, maybe it's the more pressing cultural issue. Um, there's certainly a side of our culture right now where the individual is all important. And so there can be no rule or no standard that interferes with the way the individual feels or thinks or, or whatever they think is important. And that, that somehow there's this idea that affirming the way they feel, their desires, their hurts, whatever, is all that really matters. That everybody needs to bow down to that, right? And that's nonsense. That is not what we're talking about in this passage. And I hate, honestly, that I have to make that caveat every time we talk about something like this, where I'm just like, we need to watch out for people uh, and, and not just be so focused on the rule that we lose sight of the real suffering. And yet, I think we have to. Um, because of the place that our culture 
is in right now. But even then, even having said that, man, I want to see people. I don't want to think about people and their issues as enemy inconveniences that somehow I have to like, you know, keep at bay. But I want to see these people as, as fellow travelers. I want to see them as those who are broken, who need healing, just like this lady is in this situation. Not as a nuisance on the Lord's day, but the kind of person that we should specifically be helping on the Lord's day. Now, that's sort of the first thing, right? So we're talking about this idea of, and I think that's what the passage is getting at, of seeing this person um, as a person, seeing her pain as real, and focusing on that. Saying the Sabbath is about helping people, not hurting people. We have an opportunity to help this person. Let's do that. But there's another something more subtle here that I think is 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 as applicable to our current state as as the other is. Maybe I'm focusing on, on it too much, but it has to do with this one little word in there that Jesus calls the Pharisees, and he calls them hypocrites. Now, here's the reason why I think that's significant. That's a very specific accusation to make of somebody. And it's not the same thing as just saying somebody's wrong. Agreed? You don't call somebody a hypocrite just because you disagree with them or they have a wrong understanding of something. So here's the deal. If these Pharisees genuinely think that healing is an act of work and that therefore it is a sin to do on the Sabbath, then they may be wrong in their understanding, but it would seem a little odd to me to call that person a hypocrite. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Moreover, if these people are prioritizing the law and rules over people and showing mercy in an illegitimate way, then again, they might be misguided. They might be in a situation where they've missed the big picture, but it would seem odd to me to call that person a hypocrite for that. I feel like Jesus calling them a hypocrite is zooming on in on a specific something that's going on in this passage. And again, the clue that he calls them hypocrites is what sets it off. Look at verse 15. It says, when the Lord answered him, the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? Okay, so here's the deal. So the Talmud, um, that commentary on scripture that we talked about gave exceptions for the kinds of things that you could do on the Sabbath. And they tended to have to do with critical areas of life and death. All right. So if you have a life and death situation that requires you to do something that would ordinarily be seen as work, you're allowed to do that on the Sabbath, including with, with animals. So if you've got to the, the, the sort of the stereotypical phrase that we use is if your donkey's in a ditch, okay, if you have an animal who has fallen into something and is stuck, it is going to die there if you leave it overnight, then you're allowed to go exert the effort to get that animal out of there because if you don't, it's going to die. Like, I've been in that situation before. One of my favorite memories of my granddad, I lived with my grandparents for about nine months after college, and one of my favorite stories is my granddad came in at sundown one night and said, I got a cow in a gully. Not a donkey in a ditch, but I got a cow in a gully. And this cow had gone down into the river, and he'd gotten in this little gully, and he'd gotten stuck. 
And, and we didn't know what was going to happen. And he said, you know, we may get up in the morning and this cow will be dead. We've got to get him out tonight. And we spent hours. It was probably midnight. It was dark and it was hilarious. And if you ever want to know the story, we flipped this cow upside down. We dropped him head first back into the creek accidentally. We had to, it was, it was a nightmare situation. But the deal was, is we were like, we can't leave him there because he'll be dead in the morning if we don't get him out. And so we had to go try to fix that situation. The Talmud recognized that there were situations like that. Now, in fairness, not everybody disagree. I mean, agreed about it. There were different voices in the commentary, and some some commentaries would say things like, "No, you can do something if you have a donkey in a ditch. You can bring food and lay it before the animal, but you can't get it out until the next day." Others said, "No, no, no, no. you can go ahead and get it out today." And, and, and so there was a little bit of disagreement. But it seems to be the case that the general accepted principle was that you could get this animal out or you could lead it to where it needed to go to get food or water to survive because Jesus references it, right? He references that and seems to say that it's the thing that everybody kind of agreed on and was commonly accepted, okay? All that to say, he's pointing something out. He's saying there is a common exemption to the circumstance of not working on the Sabbath that you use all the time, and yet you are unwilling to apply it to this situation. Why? There's a common thing that you would in your own life use so that help, life-saving help could be done for someone or something on the Sabbath. You know it, you believe it, you do it all the time but you won't apply it in this circumstance. Why not? Now, you might say, well, maybe it's because they hate this lady. They don't like her. And I think that could be it, but it's probably not. I think the case is it's not that they don't like her. They don't really give a rip about her. Um, That's part of the problem is that they don't seem to care about her at all. It's not that they hate the woman. The problem is, is that they hate Jesus. And he is addressing something that takes place, again, every single day, I would say, on social media and the news and in our own lives and conversations when we're going about things. And he's addressing this issue that what happens is the scorecard seems to shift depending on whether I'm talking about somebody who I am allied with or someone who is my adversary. If the person is a part of my tribe, then I think well of them. I give them the benefit of the doubt, show them grace. When they have an excuse for why they've done something wrong, I think it's legitimate. Um, everything's cool. But if my enemy does the same thing or somebody who's in another tribe, then I think the worst of them, I reject their excuses. And I use this event as evidence of the fact that their team is the worst, right? And this is why we can't trust these people. And this is the reason why you see what they do every single time. They do these kind of things, right? They do these things wrong. Jesus is saying, if it was your animal in the ditch, you would have no problem with this. If you or your tribe stood to benefit from this, there is an exemption that you would accept without question. And it would be perfectly legitimate and rational. 
However, since I'm the one who is using this as an exemption, you use it as evidence of how I'm aligned with the devil and how I'm doing something that breaks the Sabbath. Okay? Now that's hypocrisy. All right? That is the definition of the word hypocrisy. When you do it, it's a sin. But when I do it, it's perfectly justified. When my tribe benefits from it, we ignore it. But when your tribe benefits from it, we make a big deal out of it to where um, it is evidence of, of your corruption. But here's the deal. When we do that, when we support tribe over truth, justice gets, gets missed, wisdom gets missed, mercy, kindness, care, consistency across the board. So, so this week, and, and it was at y'all's recommendation, this week I've been listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Some of you guys have already listened to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Man, and it is, um, it's, so it's a podcast. It's that, that sort of long form. It's about eight episodes, kind of storytelling, uh, news expose kind of thing about the collapse of Mars Hill Church in, in the Pacific Northwest. And, and it's uh, all the stuff that came around that, okay? And you may have no idea what I'm talking about. That wasn't on your radar when it happened a few years ago. But, but if it was, it's kind of a big deal. In, in evangelical circles. But this is basically the story of how that happened. And one of the things that keep on, keeps on coming back to me, both of the characters in the story itself um, and even in the commentary on it a little bit, is there's this sort of, when this thing happens with that tribe, it's an evidence of why they're bad. But when we do it, it's noble, standing on truth. We're doing the right thing. When this character in the story over here does something, he's just telling it like it is. But when somebody else in his community does that, he says, you're being divisive and, and trying to, to, you know, overthrow my leadership or something like that. When I stand firmly on what I believe, I'm a prophet, right? I'm faithful. But when you do it, you're being bullheaded. You're being unkind. When I speak against something, I'm telling the truth in love. But when you do it, well, it's because you're a bigot. We, we, you see this stuff all the time, right? We see it on a weekly basis in terms of our media uh, and, and social media and, and the news and everything else. We're all guilty of this in some way. We feel the weight of that objective standard on us, right? It's pressing on us, whatever the truth is. And we want to justify ourselves. We want our tribe to be in the right, or even our own individual persons be in the right. Instead of being justified, or we want to be justified, and we want to make an excuse so that we are justified in the view of the world. But what always happens when you try to make an excuse for your own sin and justify your own sin, the opposite is what happens. Instead, the community looks at you and goes, that person is a hypocrite. That person is making excuses um, for, for why they've done this thing, and those excuses are not legitimate. I'm not sure if I'm saying that the best way. Does that make sense what I just said? So we think that by justifying ourselves, by making an excuse, that that is going to clear our name. 
But what it does every single time is it only makes us look more unrighteous, at least to anybody who's paying attention. Now, the, the, the people who are on our side in our tribe who are just looking for any kind of excuse to, to exonerate me, that's, they'll, they'll accept anything, right? But to the rest of the world, it doesn't make me look better. It doesn't make the rest of the world go, oh, okay, well, he, he had an excuse. It, that, that's fine. No, it just makes me look like I'm somebody who's shifting responsibility. That happens, it seems like, every single time, I think. That's what happens in this passage. When Jesus calls these people hypocrites, says that you're doing these things and you have an excuse for your own life, but you won't extend that to this this lady, what does it say in verse 17? It says, he said all these things and all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were being done by him, by Jesus. I think when it says the Pharisees were put to shame, I'm assuming that implies in the eyes of the people, not just that they were like internally ashamed of their actions, but that the people looked at the Pharisees and went, you bunch of liars, right? You bunch of double-minded, hypocritical people. You would do this on any day of the week, but just because Jesus is endorsing it in this lady's life, you're against it for some reason. The people see the game that is being played when they won't own up to it. So many of y'all are probably familiar with, there's a, there's a lady named Rachel Denhollander, and she is a, um, she's the lady who a few years back, uh, was sort of international attention and spotlight because she was the first whistleblower person in the Larry Nasser, uh, Olympic sexual abuse scandal. And she was the one who sort of first came forward and, and got the ball rolling for, for him to be held accountable. So she made a comment a couple of weeks ago. Um, when all the Andrew Cuomo stuff started coming out, right? And all the stuff about New York's, um, uh, what is, is he governor or mayor? The governor, yeah. Um, uh, you know, allegations of sexual abuse and all these different things, right? And she said this in, in, a, in a tweet that she, she said, what you do when it is in your own community is the determining factor of how much you really care. Okay, so again, all you got to do is think back a little bit over the last couple of years, right, with with some of our Supreme Court justices who have been put in during the election, all these questions of allegations of sexual abuse, allegations of sexually inappropriate behavior or whatever. And what we saw in every case is when this person is accused on the right, the left says this guy doesn't deserve to be there. Allegations are always true. Women would never lie about any of these things. This guy's a creep and shouldn't be in a position to, to receive this position, right? And the people over here are all like, no, none of this is true. It's all fake. It's all false. None of it is true, whatever, right? It doesn't take long. Six months down the road, somebody on this side now has been accused. And what happens? These people over here say, liars, cheats, awful, creepy dudes, this guy should be removed from positions of power. And everybody on this side says, nothing to see here, folks. Nothing's going on. It's all lies. It's just politics. It's whatever. And so guess what happens in the meantime? In the meantime, if there is a woman at the center of this thing that the, it has actually happened to, she is being forgotten and marginalized, just like the woman in this story, right? She's being, being used as a political pawn to bounce back and forth between these two parties, to be a cudgel for, for somebody getting the advantage in an argument, but not with Jesus. Jesus says, you know what? 
I'm going to meet this woman at her point of need. We're going to bring healing in this case, potentially justice if it was another case, regardless of whose side she's for. We're going to address the issue in terms of truth and accuracy and whether or not something's going on as opposed to how I can use this to throw shade at my opponents. That's not what the Pharisees do. They want to use this woman to delegitimize Jesus' ministry. But guess what happens? Everybody sees it for what it is. Everybody sees that Jesus is the one who is doing what is righteous, and the Pharisees are the ones who are doing what is unrighteous. I think we can all learn from that. And, I, and again, it's hard not to do it. It is hard to not support those we love, our tribe, those we agree with. We think the stakes are so high in so many situations, right, that I can't possibly admit defeat or, or, um, or problem or sin or shame or anything. I've got to protect my people. And, the, and, and Jesus is telling us, no, what you should do is be honest. You should do what is right. You should help this person in need and not use them as a political ploy. You should not change the scorecard depending on whether you're talking to your enemies or your friends. You should count this person's life and suffering as more important than scoring points in whatever context. That's, I think, the subtle message of this passage. So what I want to do is I just want to go, um, that we're going to, we're sort of an abrupt ending maybe. Uh, uh, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. Um, and again, man, I, I, it's, it's hard not to do this. It's hard not in our polarized culture to, to, to not do this. And yet I think we need to ask God to work in our hearts in these things and to say, man, I'm going to seek justice. I'm going to seek truth. I'm going to seek what is right, um, regardless of whose team a good or bad thing happens. I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know what the specific work that maybe God needs to do um, in our hearts on those things. Um, but let's go to the Lord in prayer and, and ask him to work in these things. Ask us to give us, ask him to give us a Christ honor, honoring biblical, um, perspective on these things and not just a partisan view, uh, in our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.